This is banter over a cigarette with your host, John Hollywood. I am like having the physical manifestation of your evil conscience with no concept of the word subtlety hang out with you. You are warned that listener discretion is advised while listening to my blogcasts. My blogcasts will always contain subjects pertaining to the following, such as language. I'm known for saying terrible things while at the same time still being totally awesome. Dumb fucks. Unlucky bastard. Bitch. Moron. Bitches be crazy. Cock. Fuck that shit. Kid fucker fucks fucking crazy. Drug use. Shows up with some coke. I'm like, hey, you got the blow. I'm rolling on what, four lines of really good coke and I did a lot of immoral things. The use of alcohol. And beers. Some wild turkey. And Irish car bombs. Jameson's. Irish whiskey. To get as just unreasonably drunk as you possibly can. Cheers. Or as they say in Ireland, slunch Sexual themes and innuendo. Unless you like head. Throat fucking, rough anal, was masturbating, and just on her hair while she noticed something sticking, and jack off in your hair, and other such inappropriate themes. If you are offended by any of the things just mentioned, I suggest that you turn this broadcast off right now. Pussy! Now that I've covered my ass, and knowing that nobody ever listens to disclaimers, let's piss some people off. Bitch! Hello everybody, John Hollywood here. This is Banter Over a Cigarette. Today is Saturday, April 26th at 10.38pm, and today is a very special broadcast. This will be an interview segment, and I today am interviewing uh, the author Chris Lester from the Metamore City Podcast. Hi Chris. Hi John, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. Um, so basically I'm going to do, uh, some interviewing here and ask you some questions for this blogcast. And if we get all the editing done in time, my research essay, and hopefully by having this on your pod feed, it'll boost my traffic. Yay. Yay. Always, uh, in favor of, of mutual, uh, mutually beneficial agreements. Well, I don't know how mutual it'll be for you, seeing as I probably only have four listeners right now. So, <laughs> well, any opportunity to talk about the show is uh, is always fun for me. You know, if nothing else, it, yeah. it strokes my ego. All right. Well, so here's the first question: How long have you been writing? I have been writing since probably first grade. <laughs> that that we had a uh, a story contest in. Uh, in first grade and they had us dictate stories to the teachers and then there was a contest and I got in like the top three and that pretty much addicted me to the uh, aspect of you know the the feedback side of writing from the very beginning um, I got into a more extensively probably around middle school and uh, wrote an, a whole lot of absolutely awful stories <laughs> and uh then uh, just you know continued plugging away at it whenever i would have an idea you know i'd leave it alone for maybe a year or two and then i'd get an idea that i had to write 
And, uh, you know, I was I was homeschooled from third grade on and my mom loved it because it was a great way to, um, you know, to practice English and, you know, get me to improve my writing skills and, you know, later my typing skills when I switched to actually using the computer and a word processor instead of um, writing right. it out by hand. And uh, so she was always encouraging me to, to do that sort of thing. And around about uh, 1996, I found an online writer's community uh, that did uh, science fiction and fantasy uh, with a, a bent focus towards uh, transformation as a literary theme. And uh, that was really interesting to me because I had just finished doing a little novelette about a woman who uh, was turned into a wolf. And so I was like, wow, this is a genre? I had no idea. <laughs> so I uh, started you know, reading some of the stories there and uh, started participating in it. And uh, around about a couple of years into my time there, uh, somebody put forth this uh, shared story universe uh, set in a medieval fantasy world called, uh, the, you know, the name of the universe was Metamore Keep. And uh, he basically said, hey, everybody, come on and play in my sandbox. And, uh, you know, if you want to create your character, then, you know, add yourself to the, the story setting, then go ahead and do it. And uh, so I got involved and we, you know, started world building and, you know, developing that setting. And uh, that was what eventually led to Metamore City as I started thinking about, you know, where this uh, medieval fantasy world could go in the long run uh, if technology and magic grew up together. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting. And I actually went into the same thing when I was writing. Like, my writing started out as me basically making transcripts of my favorite TV shows and kind of changing them a little mm -hmm. bit. And it kind of went on from there, and I tried comic books for a while, but I kind of thought my art sucked, so I quit that. And then about, oh, I'd say sixth grade or so, I really started writing my own original material, and I would work on it and be, like, addicted to it for months, up to half of a school year, and then I'd burn out and leave it alone. I have, like, probably... A total of eight unfinished stories in my dad's garage in Texas, in a box somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I know how that is. I have uh, on my old computer. I have one. I have two no novellas that I finished in this one. Uh, what was supposed to be a five-story arc, and uh, then the third one I just burned out in the middle because I realized that I was trying to throw too much stuff into this one world, and you know I, I have reams and reams of notes about that world and that story arc and i look back at it all and it, it's you know if i ever were to do something with it it would have to be completely overhauled from scratch because i'm not the same person i was when i wrote that right i but, have the same uh, experience <laughs> with a previous thing i worked on that i burnt out on it was supposed to be a romance and turn into like a romance action thriller back when i was mm -hmm. still all naive and gung-ho about relationships and then, like, over the last year, two years passed since I quit writing it, and I'm different now, so I can't really continue the same storyline, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so when you first started writing, what inspired you to write, and what made you want to write, basically? Um, what first inspired me to, to write was the fact that they were doing this contest, and everybody was participating at the school, 
Um, what inspired me to then go back to writing uh, once I was, you know, home, started being homeschooled uh, is I was working on a project and uh, was supposed to do a fairly standard science report um, and was getting really bored with it. And uh, my my mom just basically said, okay, instead of trying to do this as a normal report, why don't you tell me a story about these these creatures and, you know, make them, you know, essentially, you know, it was a, it was a report about, I don't know if you've ever heard of cleaner wrasses, but they're these little fish that live in, in uh, coral reefs and other fish will come to them and they will uh, eat the parasites off of them. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Right. In the and tail. so the, uh, you know, I, I was trying to do this this report and couldn't get anywhere with it i couldn't think of anything to do with it so she said write me a story about these these creatures and i'm like okay i can do that and uh so i wrote this little story where basically the the cleaner asses had like this service station where the fish came in and would you know be uh, <laughs> so you basically wrote shark something Tale like Disney that did. yes it was it was something in that, that <laughs> general vein but and then, of course, there were the uh, you know there are these other um, creatures, these blennies that look like cleaner asses, but instead of actually doing the uh, the cleaning when the they fish would infect them, well, no, but they 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 take bites out of the fish, <laughs> <laughs> and so they were the villains of the story. And uh, you know, did I had, they wear fedoras and trench coats? Um, I, they didn't wear trench coats because they were fish, but they uh, <laughs> they were coming in and trying to you know they were like the mob trying to come in and muscle out the uh, the cleaner asses so yeah. i i don't even have that story anymore it's it was all written on uh you know loose leaf paper and stuffed into one of my binders so i wouldn't be surprised if mom has it hidden away somewhere and is going yeah, to like, take it out to blackmail me with it someday <laughs> yeah the very 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 first thing i ever wrote was like a one-page short story i wrote when i was in the fifth grade mm -hmm. Because I was bored and like through free association, I just wrote this one page short story and gave it to my mom and she pinned it up on the wall in the living room and it stayed there forever. And like by the time we moved out of that place, that thing had been on the wall so long it was yellow. Of course, I'm sure that's because everybody in the house was chain smokers, possibly. <laughs> that could have something to do with it. Yes, I, I have an inkling. <laughs> so um, what was the first story that you actually wrote? Uh, that first story that I wrote in, uh, in grade school, uh, for that little contest, I don't remember much about it, um, other than it was, uh, it involved a, an ichthyosaurus and an elasmosaurus. Uh, as you may have guessed, I was big into dinosaurs. What kid um, isn't at that age? True, true. <laughs> um, and I don't remember anything about the story except that at the end they went home to eat pancakes. <laughs> That's how all stories should end. <laughs> Seriously, I think I think at the end of uh, Infected, Sigler should have a uh, pancake scene, <laughs> or at least at the end of Nocturnal, possibly. Because I mean, everybody already knows what Infected ending is if they've read the book. I, however, haven't. I'm waiting to be surprised. Right. Yeah, I, I haven't. Uh, I haven't listened to the the first run of Infected either. I, I discovered Sigler uh, with the rookie, so. Yeah, I discovered Sigler like the f first chapter after Infected started, so I spent like two days catching up on Nocturnal, mm -hmm. and I was listening to Nocturnal at like four in the morning, like the part the part where you know the Asian mobster guy gets gets whacked or whatever, 
And oh, I, yeah. Yeah, four in the morning. I'm freaking out. Everybody's in bed. I'm using my iPod <laughs> as a flashlight. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Sigler um, does good work. Yes. Right, well, it's been a long time since a story screwed me up like that. I think the last <laughs> thing the last thing that I saw that really, truly freaked me out uh, was The Grudge. And for for months after watching that movie, I had to have a flashlight to walk around at night because it, it just. It, I went to go see that as a group movie out. with my military school. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so you can imagine all the all the kids in the barracks would sneak outside and knock on your windows and go, you know. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, as a, you know, this will no, this will probably make you smile. But the last thing that really freaked me out was uh, the monster scene from Infect uh, from Troubled Minds. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, like the opening of the uh, podcast is, you know, hey, this is freaky. Don't listen to it with the lights off. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, right. Compared to Sigler, come on. And then I'm listening to it, and I'm about to go to bed. And then it gets the very <laughs> first scene, like where uh, your telepath character, I can't remember her name right now, is in the shower. Abby. Abby, yeah. She's in the shower, and then she sees the ghost. And then she sees the monster, and then in her dreams, she confronts the monster. And I'm like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have listened to this at 3 in the morning with the lights off. That probably was a bad call on my part. <laughs> well, thank you. That uh, yeah. that tells me I did my job. Exactly. Um, what was the first thing that you wrote that you were actually proud of? Because I know in your very first podcast episode, Zero, you said you were writing for years, but you had a whole bunch of stuff that just made you wince when you read over it again. What was the first mm-hmm. thing, aside from Metamorph City, that you were proud of that you had written? Uh, the first thing I was proud of when I finished it, or the first thing that I I was proud I can still look back and be proud of. Both. Okay. Um, the first story that I of any length that I finished, and when I finished it, I was able to look back at it at the beginning and uh, read through it and still be happy with it. Um, Excuse me. In 1995, I wrote the first novella in that um, space opera series that uh, I'd kind of had dancing around in my head for a while. Um, basically, the the concept behind it is that there are these um, shape shifting humanoid aliens who have been watching over Earth and protecting it. For All respect to shape shifting with you, hmm? you know. Less so now than it used to be, but yeah, transformation has always been a a big, uh, interesting literary theme for me because, um, well, we can get into the reasons for that later. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the story was essentially the, um, took place in two, um, parallel storylines. Uh, one where this, these uh, aliens, they have a scout ship that uh, encounters a race that they've never encountered before. Um, they try to make contact with it, and the ship gets disabled, and everyone inside gets captured. Um, and then we sort of leave them and go to the other side of the uh, the storyline, which is about this um, one character who is a, a observer on Earth. And he's part of this core of individuals um, so basically, this uh, you know this alien society they view Earth as being uh, sacred for deep religious you know religious reasons. I'm not going into for the purposes of this discussion. So they keep an eye on Earth in order to try to 
um, shield it from outside interference. And, uh, you know, sort of like an enforced prime directive. Um, and uh, this observer character, you know, starts to hear about people being abducted by aliens and goes and investigates it and ends up getting abducted. And it turns out that it's this same race that took the members of the scout ship that we saw in chapter one. And uh, the story is then about them trying to escape and uh, about the resulting battle between the uh, the two space fleets between um, basically over control of who is going to get rights to have access to Earth. All right, so that was my first uh, book that I, you know first uh, story that I wrote and was really um, satisfied with it when I was done with it. You know, as for the other half of the question about. Um, a story that I can look back now and uh, still be proud of. Um, there is a short story. There are actually two sh uh, two short stories that I wrote uh, fairly close together back in uh, 1997. Um, one of them was a, uh, a sort of um, religious sci-fi apocalyptic um short story um about the uh, the rapture in christian religion um and the other one was a short story about a woman who had a uh a supernatural talent to basically be able to make anyone do whatever she wanted them to do as long as you know if she asked them to do it they would they would have to do it and it was about the psychological uh, consequences for her of having this power and the way that it um, it affected her and her ability to interact with people. I'm still t uh, pretty proud of both of those stories, and I, I can look back at them now, and I think that they hold up. But I'm glad that you still have stories that you're still proud of. I think the only one that I'm still proud of to date uh, is the one that I never finished that I can't find, another one that I just lost completely when my computer fried, and the one I'm working on now. So, after you originally got into Metamore Keep, uh, what inspired your own ideas for Metamore City as an advanced city further down the timeline as far as the history of the city went? Um, the, uh, one of the main things that uh, made me think That's about fine. the concept of Metamore City was the fact that um, we were writing a, a world where magic was not going away. Um, you know, you look at Lord of the Rings or a lot of the other um, fantasy worlds that uh, think of the concept of technology advancing or of the world changing. They're always about the world of fantasy becoming more like our world, uh, things becoming less magical. And uh, we decided fairly early on that we didn't want to do that. We set up a world where magic was kind of at a low ebb. It had always been around, but uh, for a number of reasons, it had been sort of draining out of the world slowly, and um, powerful magic was becoming more rare. And uh, that problem was eventually addressed in the course of the Metamore Keep story arc, and magic started to come back into the world again. And so we knew that long-term... Um, you know, as technology continued to improve, the magic was going to be there. And it was really interesting to me to think of what would cause a, how a society would evolve 
if you know they had access to magic and access to um you know technological advancements you know you look at something like shadow run where you've got magic and tech side by side uh the magic showed up later it sort of dropped in on everybody and uh nobody was expecting it and society had to adjust i wanted to envision a world where um, the integration between magic and technology was more organic that had been happening slowly and that both of them had been developed side by side so that people were comfortable with both of them. Um, the other factor that um, made me think about Metamore City was the uh, the storyline that I was writing in Metamore Keep, which basically was about the fall of the gods. Um, you had this major um religion that uh was focused around um 18 deities in two halves of a pantheon uh the gods of light and the gods of shadow and uh the you know the story arc that i was writing was sort of focused around this one uh young priestess who had been uh genetically engineered by the gods of light in order to make her a weapon that they could use to remove the gods of shadow from any position of power. And uh, essentially she backstabbed them. She drained the gods of shadow and then turned around and did the same thing to the gods of heaven. And so all 18 of them were cast down to the earth and uh, had to walk the world like mortals, still very powerful, but ultimately vulnerable and anyone who killed one of them could take their place in the pantheon. So um, I started to think about what the consequences would be for human society to have these fallen gods running around, um, sort of not really able to meddle in human affairs on the gr the grand, broad scale that they had been before, but um, being much more immediately present and uh, thus, you know, it, it was one thing, you know, to have uh, the god of uh, wisdom dropping prophecies on everyone, you know, and sort of trying to shape the, the course of history by his visions that he sent to people. Uh, it's quite another thing when he is physically ruling a small country <laughs> and you can actually go to the capital and get an audience with him. So... Those were the two main um, factors that sort of played into my thoughts about uh, where Metamore was going and uh, led to the, the creation of Metamore City. You were just talking about uh, the falling of the gods of light and the uh, gods of shadow. Seeing as you're talking about the religion of Metamore as it is, um, how about explaining the Ecclesia as you uh, talked more about it uh, as the story progresses in making the cut? Okay. Um, the Ecclesia is one of uh, a couple of major um, factions that are, are called theistic um, religions in the world of Metamore City. Uh, essentially, in Metamore, nobody is truly atheist because there's too much evidence sitting around that the world was created. Um, you know, and so that that whole concept of, of a completely non-existent uh, deity is not really something that ever um, developed in the psyche. What you have are three groups of people 
one which says that the creator is present and active in the creation and um, that human beings are capable of having um, some sort of relationship with it. Um, those are the theists. The universalists believe that there was a creator God, but that it essentially sacrificed itself to become the universe and spread its divine essence through the uh, through the creation in order to to experience different points of view and to experience different um, emotions and circumstances and sort of understand itself because before the creation came into existence it was an entity by itself with no sense of um, you know no, there was nothing for it to interact with no one for it to um, have relationship with and so it essentially divided itself up into a billion trillion pieces in order to um, then experience life and experience existence. So those people essentially believe that every um, sentient being, every living thing has a piece of the divine nature that they are then trying to um, learn how to embody. Um, you essentially want to learn what piece of the divine nature you have within yourself and then try to reflect that as purely and completely as possible and if you succeed in doing this then your um the soul fragment the divine essence that you have inside of you will then be able to remember what it is after you die and will join to become part of um other fragments that are most like itself so the hope is that eventually everyone will be enlightened and the whole universe will become conscious again, that the creator will then be unified and be self-aware and be able to remake itself into a conscious universe that is completely perfect. Um, the third group of uh, different, uh, the third religious group is, is called the agnostics. And, uh, you know, these are people who basically say that, you know, yeah, obviously there was a creator, but we can't know anything about it. Uh, we don't really believe that it is active in the universe today, and we're not really too sure that we buy this whole uh, universalist idea that everybody's got a piece of God in them. So they just basically figure, you know, yeah, there probably was a creator, but we can't know it and uh, can't understand it, can't relate to it, and, uh, you know, we should be focusing our lives on the more practical matters of day-to-day -day life and some of these people have philosophies that are sort of similar to, to Zen Buddhism um, or some of the other um, non-theistic philosophies of our world's history um, but some of them are just people who basically say yeah whoever the creator is or was it doesn't have anything to do with me so I'm just going to go ahead and live my life um, the Ecclesia are, as I said, one of the two major theistic factions, and uh, they are a group which is parallel to the Catholic Church of our world in a lot of ways. Um, the figure that they, they worship, they worship a god called Eli, uh, which the Universalists believe is real, but they, they just believe it's a particularly strong and powerful fragment of the Creator God, uh, whereas the theists actually believe that Eli is the creator and uh, you know the the ecclesia is the largest and most um, organized of the different religions that worship Eli who are together collectively known as the followers of the way
and uh, there's another major religious group um, that is also um, following Eli, and those are called the uh, the Moriahists or the Church of Saint Mori, and these are people who basically, um, you know, they they worship Eli as the creator, but they also give reverence to all of the old gods of the the old polytheistic uh, pantheon. And, uh, you know, they, they view these individuals, the gods of light and the gods of shadow, they see them as being moral teachers who were sent by Eli to guide and shape um, the course of human history by essentially giving them examples, um, archetypes of good and evil and of various virtues and vices. And so by studying and looking to these uh, different deities that the uh that people can thus help you know understand good and evil more clearly than they could otherwise and so the mariahists still pay homage to the old gods even though they don't worship them and uh, they will sometimes disciple themselves to one of those old gods in order to better understand the aspect of virtue that uh that that particular god embodies yeah, now, I have to say that I'm enjoying this interview so far, and even though I'm the one asking the questions, just listening to you talk, I still feel like I'm listening to one of your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you you just have a natural voice for storytelling. Well, thank you. Yeah, so how long have you been writing the Metamore stories, and have you, since writing Metamore stories, written anything out of the world of Metamore? I started writing uh, in Metamore Keep in... I think late 1997 or early 1998. Um, I started writing me uh, Metamore City stories in 2001 after having spent about two years just doing world building. And uh, I sort of played with it on and off. Um, I wrote a f uh, the first few stories in 2001 and early 2002, uh, wrote The Muse in 2003, wrote Troubled Minds in 2004, and then in uh, 2007, I started working on uh, making a cut. Uh, I have, oh, and in 2006, I wrote a uh, Metamore City ca um, story called Divide by Zero, which uh, will eventually be on the podcast, but it's going to have to be adapted for audio because it was me being experimental and cute with, uh, with visual um, text tricks and stuff. So I have to figure out how to translate the funky stuff I was doing with, with the visual medium into an audio medium. Um, I have written some more um, st short stories in the original Metamore Keep uh, since I started working on Metamore City, but uh, I have not... Oh, actually, yes, I, I also wrote an, one novella in another shared story universe called Tales from the Blind Pig. I did that one in 2005, I think. And uh, that was um, sort of the culmination of a, a story arc that I had been telling in uh, that story universe before uh, Metamore Keep showed up and before I really got caught up in, in Metamore Keep. Um, I'm trying to think if I've written anything else that wasn't um, in that setting, but uh, nothing is coming to mind at this moment. I have ideas for other uh, short stories that I want to do, 
but uh, right now, obviously, the podcast is taking up most of my attention. Right, and when you were describing Divide by Zero, you mentioned you were being cute and experimenting with visual tricks. What kind of visual tricks do you mean? Um, basically, the, uh, the, the protagonist in Divide by Zero learns how to perceive time non-linearly. She um, gains the ability to see different branching paths um, that the future could take and um, you know, to essentially see choices that she's capable of making uh, and thus have the opportunity to consciously choose which path um, of the future that she wants to follow. And uh, so I have these sections of the text where um, a sentence starts and then it branches out upwards, downwards, and straight across the page um, following different these different timelines and then she chooses one of them and the the story proceeds from that you know assuming that she followed that choice um and then there's another uh point in the story where her um she she's like a, a theoretical um physicist or a, a, a mathematical physicist um and her graduate advisor is talking to her and on the left side of the page, you see all the, the things that he's saying. And she, on the right side of the page, you see her stream of consciousness, where she's picking out different words in his speech and is applying completely different connotations to them based on the visions that she's seeing in her perceptions of nonlinear time. Those words are branching her out into you know, all these other thoughts that lead from one to another and braid back and forth. And then finally, at the end of that, you know, his little monologue, he stops and he's like, Hallie, Hallie, and she pulls herself back into linear time. And then the conversation proceeds from there. That sounds really interesting. I'd actually love to read that as a book instead of hearing it as a podcast, simply because the way you use the words on the page... Yeah, I'll send you a, a link to it. It's a short story. Um, it's probably about the length of the muse, and uh, you know, probably about fifteen thousand words, I would guess. But uh, it was a lot of fun to write. Very, uh, very interesting little experiment. Yeah, because I'd love to read that. Uh, when I receive the link, do you mind if I provide that same link to the blogcast? Not at all. Go ahead. Awesome. I'd love to do that. Um... Cool. Well, um, so now that we have a good amount of backstory and everything, we're going to move on into the realm of podcasting. And I'm going to start by asking, what made you want to start podcasting? Uh, mostly it was Bill about Battings in the case of The Singing Sword. Uh, the fact that um, I heard T put out this audio production of his novel that was just absolutely beautiful to listen to you know with the music and the sound effects and the, all the different guest voices it took a, a a prose work and elevated it to this level that was sort of in between novel and audio drama and in my opinion is better than either of them and because uh, that's that's always been my beef with audio dramas is that half the time you can't tell what the hell's going on and uh, so the the idea of taking a, a prose work and enhancing it with all of the things that people incorporate into an audio drama uh, really appealed to me. And uh, 
so I, I was I'd been considering the idea of putting out my work in uh, audio form before that because uh, I had seen that podcasting was a way for people to develop an audience and uh, when I saw what T was able to do with Billabub that really inspired me and uh, made me make the the final decision that yes I am going to attempt to do this I'm going to make you know try to make this happen so did you always plan on having sound effects in your podcasts or was that kind of like a last minute decision during production because I noticed that you always have a high quality of production in your work with full music and voice casts and sounds effects and everything that was always the plan um I didn't want to do this half-assed um I knew that with all the other podcast novels that are out there that I would need to come out of the gate strong with something that would really wow people and get them talking um, in order to build an audience. Uh, so from the very beginning, I knew that I wanted it to be something fantastic, that if I was going to do it at all, I wanted to make sure I was doing it on a level that would be, you know, that would put me in contention for the parsecs in my first year. Uh, that was my goal. Um, that was, you know, Part of why I went to get Leanne Maybrief to do episode two and uh, why I started aggressively looking for people to, you know, in the podcasting community to be the voice cast uh, for the, you know, beginning with uh, Troubled Mind or beginning with the Muse and Troubled Minds and then continuing onward. Um, so, yeah, that was that was always the plan. Uh, I was using Billabub Battings as my model, as I said before. And I didn't want to do anything that was less um, quality than what T was putting out. Yeah, because um, I've, I've noticed since I started podcasting, I started my podcasting with Sigler. And there's those guys on both sides of the fence, you know, the, the guys that do everything by themselves with the voices and the sound effects and everything like Sigler. And then there's the guys like you and T. Morris and... Well, that's basically it as far as I have, because you three are the Did only ones. Holyfield, Philip Abalantine. Well, yeah, but uh, you three are the only ones I'm currently listening to right now, so. But yeah, gotcha. I mean, I've noticed that on both sides of the fence with my limited experience thus far, and uh, depending on what side you're on, it's good both ways, because Sigler does an awesome job at doing his own voices with his sound effects and everything, just going solo in his closet. And then there's mm -hmm. people like you and T and uh, Philip Ballantyne, like you said, who do it just as well, and they have their own voice cast and everything. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting diversity, and I'm really enjoying it. And on a side note, I'm really glad that I read one of you, I, I read some show notes uh, about a week before doing this interview or even thinking about it, because up until reading those show notes, I thought Philip's last name was Valentine, not Valentine. I didn't notice the B at all until I looked at the show notes. <laughs> so I'm glad I looked at those yeah. show notes or I would have fallen flat on my face in this interview. Yeah, so for anybody out there who's hoping to uh, do their own podcasts with uh, high production value and the sound effects and everything, what program uh, do you use for all of your sound effects? Um, I use uh, Cubase LE as my primary uh, place where I'm, I'm weaving in all of the music and sound effects. Uh, I use Audacity for my, my um, basic editing uh, where I'm clipping out my ums and uhs and you know my breaths and such and putting in the the guest voices 
Um, so I get a main narration track that is just you know an, an AIFF file, um, which I produce in, in Audacity, and then I import that into um, Cubase and use that um, that program to work in all of the music and, and sound effects because it's very versatile. You can have a lot of tracks open. You can apply different um, patches and effects to the different tracks. And, uh, you know, it's it's got a, a steep learning curve, but now that I'm familiar, familiar with how to use it, I really like it. And uh, I tried going to GarageBand and didn't really um, do anything for me. I'm I'm going to be sticking with Cubase, I think. I also wanted to try to get into GarageBand too uh, when I was going to do my recording, but I found out that Audacity was free, so I do everything in Audacity. Um, so this program you use for your sound and your music is it free or is it costly? Um, the uh, the version that I have is an entry level version, um, which is included as packaged software together with the audio interface device which I use, which is the Lexicon Lambda. Um, I use that um, interface as my sound card slash mixer, and uh, that is where I um, plug in my MXL 990, and uh, you know that thing feeds into my, my, my Mac, and from there I use um, Cubase to record. Um, there are uh, versions of it that are available commercially. Uh, there are upgrades for it that are available, but I found that I don't really need any of the extra features that the more advanced versions have, so I just stick with the one that came with my device. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, tell us where we can find more uh, sound files and stuff online, or how we can possibly use Audacity to uh, acquire these sound effects? If you're looking for good sites um, for music and sound effects, the ones that I used when I was starting out are, um, for sound effects, I use SoundSnap, uh, which is www.soundsnap.com, and uh, the Free Sound Project, which is freesound.iua.upf.edu. Um, and there are thousands of sound clips there at those two libraries uh, for just about anything that you can imagine. They vary widely in quality, but uh, anything that you heard in the first um, eight episodes of Metamore City was probably derived from uh, one of those two sites in terms of the sound effects. Um, in terms of music, there's... Uh, couple of really good sites music.podshow.com and magnatune.com m-a-g-n-a-t-u-n-e.com um, those are sites that have pod safe music where you can go and anybody can download the the songs and use them uh, as long as they're giving credit back to the artists and linking back to their their websites so that the artists can uh, get people to hopefully buy their music um, so those are uh, some really good resources. I got a lot of my stuff through those sites. Um, and then because I was a good little podcaster and gave proper credit back to the uh, creators, I got additional offers from one of them, a composer named David Beard, to use more of his stuff in my show, which is not Podsafe. 
Um, it's stuff that he gave me explicit uh, permission to use uh, for my own show because I was a good neighbor and you know promote his uh, promote his music. So that's the uh, that's the distinction that you have to watch out for. Podsafe music means that anybody can use it uh, without asking for advance permission. Um, but it is possible to get non-Podsafe music on your podcast uh, if you get permission from the artists. That's what Scott Sigler did in getting uh, Uncrowned and Lacuna Coil um, to uh, provide the music for The Rookie and Nocturnal. Um, that's what J.C. Hutchins did for the theme songs for each of his uh, chap volumes of Seventh Son. And uh, so it is possible to get music that's not podsafe and uh, incorporate it. You just have to get clearance ahead of time. Another way that you can get access to a lot of music and sound effects if you're willing to invest some money uh, is digitaljuice.com. Uh, this is a site that provides royalty-free uh, music and sound effects where you basically um, you buy the license to use their stuff and uh, so you buy a collection of music or a collection of sound effects and then you can use any of the stuff in there in any of your own productions um, but someone else can't then take those mu uh, music tracks or sound effects and incorporate them into their own uh, podcast they have to buy their own license to digital juice um, the standard prices for Digital Juice's stuff are really expensive because they primarily are marketing to corporations, but they have big sales all the time. Every week there's something going on sale for like a tenth of the price that it normally goes for. Um, you, you frequently have music uh, collections available where you get 20 tracks for 10 bucks, um, and sound effects, um, I got both of my sound effects libraries for about $100 each, and they normally sell for 500 So uh, if you're willing to invest a little bit, those uh, I, I do recommend Digital Juice. Their stuff is high quality. Um, the software that you use to access it is sometimes a little buggy, but the quality of the, um, the actual content is top-notch and uh, I'm using digital juice stuff very extensively from the, the beginning of making the cut onward um, I'm using probably about 90% uh, digital juice for sound effects uh, for music I'm still mostly using Podsafe sources or uh, David Beard's music that he gave me explicit permission to use so what kind of advice do you have to offer for anybody out there who wants to record uh, and podcast their own uh, works of fiction or anything else? Uh, if you're looking to get into podcasting, uh, the first thing that I would encourage you to do is um, you know, make sure that you understand the, the community that's out there. Uh, podcasting is an extremely personal sort of uh, practice because you're putting your stuff out there and you're getting immediate feedback um, you know in an ideal world <laughs> if people are listening to you uh, then you're putting your stuff out there and you're getting responses back and it's this conversation going on and there's also an ongoing conversation between you and the other podcasters 
you can't make it as a podcaster if you are a lone wolf. You have to uh, engage in the community. And uh, the best way to do that is to find out what other people need and uh, help them obtain it. Um, do your best to provide it for them. You know, people are looking for voicemails, call in and give voicemails. If they're looking for book reviews, give them book reviews. If they're looking for uh, people to participate in their podcast, um, you know, either as guerrilla marketing, you know, street team, or as, uh, you know, as guest voices or whatever, um, jump in and get involved because it is the connections that you will build by helping other people with their podcasts that will then inspire them to want to help you. And you can't get anywhere in this business if you don't have people on your side on a personal level. If other podcasters like you and respect you and uh, you've done good things to help them, they will go to the wall for you again and again and again. Um, and so will their friends, because you'll get a reputation for being a person who is generous and giving and, um, you know, a person who's pleasant to work with. Uh, go to conventions and meet these people. Um, you know, build a personal rapport with as many other podcasters as you can. Um, avoid the politics of, uh, you know, that happen anytime that you get people into large groups. You're going to hear people say things about other podcasters. Don't listen. Let them just wash over you. Um, one of the best bits of advice that I got early on as I was getting into podcasting was don't believe anything you hear about someone until you um, see it for, your, for yourself, until you you know, have a, a personal experience with that person uh, as a basis to judge them. Because you, know, you do get personality conflicts, which will lead to, um, some snot fights. You know, podcasting is a family and, uh, like any family, there are, uh, internal disagreements. There are points of, of conflict between people on a personal level that, uh, have nothing to do with whether that person is a good person or not a good person. They have everything to do with, you know, just personality clashes and uh, so the best thing that you can do if you want to podcast, you know, to, to break into podcasting is to um, be yourself, but be the best self that you can be, if that makes any sense. Um, it, it definitely pays to be on your best behavior and to treat other people with respect and to uh, do what you can to assist others, uh, because all of that stuff uh, gets paid back threefold. You know, if, if people, uh, if you develop a reputation for being a jerk, then, uh, that's a very, very difficult thing to overcome. You know, if you develop a person who is, a, a reputation as a person who is good to work with, uh, then that will spread also. And, uh, people will be much more likely to help you and uh, play your promos and do all of that wonderful stuff that gets people talking about your show. Uh, the other piece of advice that I would give, apart from the personality side of things, is to um, make sure that you're doing your research ahead of time on what kind of equipment you're actually going to need. Uh, make sure that you are 
going to invest the level of money that you need to to produce a product that is at the level of quality that you're looking for. Um, there are a lot of different ver uh, levels of quality of in podcasting, but if you're looking to produce fiction, I think that you need to have a pretty good setup. Mine is about a $300 setup, plus the money that I've spent uh, more recently on uh, Digital Juice, and uh, it, it helps me to produce a good uh, a good superior product that uh, that people are talking about. So you know kind of count the cost ahead of time also count the cost in terms of the time investment uh, think about how often you want to release your your podcast and uh, make sure that you've got enough time to realistically do that I uh, release Metamore City on a bi-weekly schedule because I knew that I couldn't consistently pull off better than that um, and I would rather consistently release the shows on a, a two-week schedule than to try for a weekly schedule and then have lots of breaks and hiatuses and late episodes. I don't want to be that guy. And, uh, you know, because I, I think that your schedule is a contract with your listeners. And so, you know, if you're going to do something that requires a lot of special effects, a lot of um, post-recording uh production work, then set your podcast for a less frequent schedule. Two weeks is probably um, about right for the kind of thing that I'm doing. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think that you could get away with being less than than twice a week, if or, or <laughs> twice a month, not twice a week, heavens. Um, I don't think you could get away with doing a monthly podcast if you're trying to tell an ongoing story. Uh, because that's just, you know, too much discontinuity. You know, it breaks up uh, the experience for people a little too much. Um, so you should try to, to stick to one week or two weeks for yeah, your episode schedule. But uh, decide ahead of time whether you have the time to do a weekly podcast, because I knew I didn't. Um so those would be the the main pieces of advice that I would give. How well did you expect to be received by any potential listeners you were hoping to get when you started podcasting uh, anything uh, involved with Metamore City? I had pretty high hopes for Metamore City. I wasn't entirely sure whether people were going to uh, glom on to the, the kind of unusual mixture of genres that I was doing, but... Um, I thought that it had a lot of potential, and I thought it was good, and I thought that if I produced it in a way that uh, would grab people's attention, that uh, word about it would spread pretty fast. I would say that uh, the uh, the current level of, of following that I'm getting is about where I expected on my, mod you know, with a moderately optimistic outlook. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably doing a little bit better than I, I first thought that I would uh, at this stage in the game. Um, I kind of set my expectations to be happy with anything over um, 500 listeners after, you know, by the end of 2007. And uh, by that time, I think I was pulling down about 800. So, and, and 
br- sort of flirting with a thousand. So, um, I haven't broken out the way that, uh, the way that playing for keeps did where Murr had uh, 10,000 listeners her first week, but, uh, I'm very happy with where things are at. And, uh, you know, in a way I, I almost expected more negative feedback than I've gotten. Everybody that has uh, written into me has for the most part been really digging the stories. I had a few people kind of say, you know, that some particular aspect of the story that they didn't really understand the reasoning behind it or that they thought that the characters were going about things the wrong way. Um, and those are things that I'm happy to have conversations with about the fan, you know, with the fans because it helps to make it a better story in the long run. You know, I'm, when I go back and edit this stuff, uh, but in there, I haven't gotten you know any hate mail. I haven't gotten any uh, messages from people, you know, saying you know how dare you do this or that or the other thing. Uh, so on the whole, I'm I'm very pleased because I I frankly expected uh, some of my stuff to be more controversial than it apparently has been. I, I guess that I didn't give uh, science fiction fans and fantasy fans enough uh, credit for open mindedness. But, uh, yeah, the, the reaction's been very good. And uh, I wouldn't say that I'm completely surprised by it because the truth is that I have a big enough ego to think that um, the stuff that I was putting out was good enough that people would want to listen to it. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with the, uh, the current level that Metamore City is at. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing to expand my, uh, my listenership as uh, time goes on. Do you ever see the Metamorph City podcast uh, possibly turning into a TV show or a movie of any oh, kind? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I would say TV show, but there's no budget in the world big enough for Metamorph City as a weekly series. So um, I'm going to say miniseries, actually, because I don't think that... Uh, you could fit the amount of story that I have into um, into a, a single two-hour movie or even a three-hour movie. Um, but I think that any of the the stories that I'm telling could probably be done um, as miniseries. Um, and then if <laughs> the first miniseries did well, then uh, you know follow up with later installments. Um, but uh, trying to do an ongoing week-in, week-out uh, show with uh, the production values that would be required to make Metamorph City believable, I don't think anybody could really pull that off. Now, unless it was like a computer-generated animation show, uh, I could see that as maybe a, t- a television series. Because uh, in that case, all you need are the models and the you know, computer processing power to pull it off and of course good voice actors that I actually would I, I, I would be uh, pretty excited to see that but uh, of course this is all you know pie in the sky stuff I don't really expect uh, to see the stories translated to a visual medium anytime soon um, the uh, I, I'm, I'm actually happy with the audio uh, experience with Metamorph City. I think that the uh, this is probably the best way to enjoy these stories. Orson Scott Card has this sort of ongoing joke when people ask him, you know, 
you know, wouldn't you like to see one of the, you know such and such a book, whether it's Ender's Game or you know the Red Prophet or whatever, uh, made into a movie? And he's like, why would I want a mo- it to be a movie? It's already a book, and a lot of people don't get that. But uh, you know, as he's explained, you can do things in a book that you can't do with uh, a movie, and you can do things with an audio book that uh, you can't do with a movie, and. Uh, as much as it would be really freaking sweet to see Metamore City uh, on the screen, uh, I think that the theater of the mind is a very good place for it. And I think that the things that I can do uh, in this world are uh, a lot more flexible than uh, any uh, television network or uh, movie production house would be able to, to manage. So, yeah. Earlier this week, I listened to Making the Cut, episode 8. How many more episodes do you think that will be in store for your listeners as far as Making the Cut goes before it comes to a completion? Uh, Making the Cut has uh, 30 chapters. Uh, Maybe it's 31 now, Um, but... That's the when it's finished, it should have 30 to 31 chapters plus an epilogue. Uh, I haven't decided yet whether the epilogue will be a uh, separate standalone episode or if I will lump it in with the last chapter. Uh, so you're looking at about uh, 22 more episodes in, uh, in making the cut 20 to, 22 to 23. Because all podcast novelists with the amount of success that you have and almost anybody that is basically touched by Sigler or Hutchins or T. Morris or Philippa Ballantyne or basically anybody else in your cast always gets a big boost of listeners. Like Seth Harwood, for example, always gets a big listener boost when Sigler talks about him or when there's a promo on Sigler's show. And so basically I'd like to know about how many listeners you have to date. That's always a difficult thing to measure with uh, with podcasts. We're still sort of feeling out the technology that's necessary to really determine how many people are actively engaged with content at any given time. Uh, but based on the best estimates that I have, um, I have about 1,200 people who subscribe to the RSS feed um, and are actively engaging the content in the sense of you know, continuing to check for new episodes and download them when they show up. Um, but my total um, number of people actually downloading the episodes is uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 1,800 to 2,000. So there's uh, there's a good number of people who are out there who are downloading the episodes directly from the website or listening in some other way that FeedBurner isn't uh, picking it up. So, um, how many people do I have regularly? I'm not really sure, but uh, I would say that ballpark figure is that about 2,000 people are engaged in, uh, you know, interacting with the content at any you know any given time. Whether they're the same 2,000 people from week to week, you know, most of them probably are, but. It's really hard to track those individual downloads. So now that we've already brought up the subject for uh, making the cut, 
I'd like to know more about the characters and uh, where you got the ideas for them and what made you shape their personalities the way that you did and are any of the characters based on yourself or anybody you know in general? Oh, man. Um, yeah, I could talk for hours about my characters <laughs> because to me they are like, you know, the, they're the people who live in my head. Um, you know, they say that, that you know, authors and schizophrenics uh, have a lot in common, and uh, it's probably more true than we'd care to admit. Um, I don't have anybody who, any any of my characters who are actually based on um, people who I know. Uh, they are, they do tend to reflect different aspects of my personality, uh, just because you tend to write what you know. And so my characters, I don't have any characters who are like, um, gonzo, wacky, laugh out loud, funny, because I'm not that kind of guy. Um, but you do tend to see a lot of my characters who have this sort of, uh, dry, sarky, snarky, uh, sardonic, um, sense of humor because uh, that is closer to the way that I operate. Um, my humor tends to be more subtle, and uh, it, it, that shows up in a lot of my characters. Um, a lot of my characters tend to be very um, articulate and very thoughtful about um, deeper questions, because those are the sorts of things, the, the sorts of questions that interest me that inspire me to write in the first place. Um, but uh, for the most part, my characters tend to be, um, you know, there are people who show up in my head, um, either sort of spontaneously or because uh, I need them to fill a specific role within a story. Um, typically, the way that I will write is I'll get a concept for a story, you know, a basic idea of what... I want to happen or a, t a question that I want to explore and then I will start to think about the kinds of characters that I would need in order to make that story happen uh, that was basically what happened with making the cut I knew that I wanted to do a story that would look at the um, look at the world of the hive of the Psy Collective um, but you know somebody who would who would be familiar with that world, but would also be kind of an outsider because we as as uh, listeners are kind of outsiders. And uh, I also wanted to play with the concept of differing societies having different notions of value and differing notions of what is important. Uh, if you look at societies in our world, um, there are cultures even within our own country, where education is not highly prized, uh, where success, academic success, um, where um, most of the, the standards of achievement that we would consider valuable um, in terms of mainstream society um, are sort of looked upon with little regard and... Uh, you know, the, the whole concept of keeping it real 
has become a uh, a sort of slogan that's used in certain sectors of our our population to basically uh, heap scorn on anyone who tries to succeed along more traditional lines. And so that's an example of how um, two groups of people living in the same country and dealing with, you know, essentially the same um, collection of challenges, um, albeit to different degrees and coming at it from different directions. Um, You know, there's nobody in our our society who has to deal with the sort of crushing uh, poverty situation that you have, like, in Africa or or Bangladesh or whatever. Um, And and yet you have these completely different uh, levels of or sets of priorities between different uh, subcultures in society. And so I wanted to look at, at the Psy Collective as a subculture where the only standard of achievement that really mattered was your telepathic powers or your psychic powers, whatever they were, whatever discipline they were. Um, and all of the other things, the, the other measures of achievement are nice, but they aren't considered essential and uh, that people who might have everything going for them in mainstream society uh, are not necessarily going to have a very easy time of it in the world of the collective if they don't also have um, the power to you know sort of gain the respect of their community and show that they have genes that are worth passing on to the next generation so that was the the concept behind Dave uh, bet- behind uh, Daniel. Daniel Sharabi is my picture of you know he's he's the guy that I would have wanted to be. He's you know he is still smart. He's you know very um, you know gifted in the academic side of things, but he's also you know handsome. He's athletically proficient. He's, uh, you know, got a hot girlfriend he, you know, he's, that he's in a stable relationship with. He's a nice guy. Um, he's uh, he's a martial artist. He's he's quite good on with that side of things. Um, he basically is a very successful guy on all the standards of achievement that we would normally consider important, except for this fact that his powers suck. And because of that, he's treated as an outsider and he's given very little regard within the, uh, the telepathic community. So I'm, you know, I wanted to sort of take the classic action hero leading man, you know, and, um, stick him in a situation where people treated him like a loser because he of, of this one deficiency in the one category that they considered most important within their society and then watch how he endeavors to overcome that because he can't bring himself to give up his his uh, participation in the psi collective you know the the community is more important to him than uh all of his his individual achievements, all of those things don't really matter if he doesn't have um, a place where he is accepted and embraced and and loved. Um, The other characters in 
making the cut and grew up because of my need to fulfill the you know for them to fulfill different roles in that story around Daniel um I wanted to use uh Brian as the as the antithesis of of Daniel in a lot of ways uh Brian is this sort of you know introverted quiet geeky guy uh who has got a persistent paunch he's uh you know he's had you know military training and he's been successful at what he's done but he hates fighting he hates conflict um and he would be perfectly happy to just be left to you know left to live his quiet little life as a uh, a you know computer systems administrator and uh, is not at all interested in being dragged back into this world of of combat and intrigue that uh, that he was a part of for the uh, the last five years at the time that uh, chapter two of the story picks up. Um, so I, I'm using uh, Brian as a point of contrast with Daniel and uh, using the two of them to show the opposite sides of the collective society, the side from the, the guy who has everything going for him in the mundane world but is a failure in the, the world of uh, the collective, and on the other side, the guy who would be considered not anybody all that special in mundane society but who is wanted so much by the collective that they put extra responsibilities and pressures on him that are more than he wants. The other characters in, in Making the Cut sort of orbit around one or both of, of those two and uh, tend to fulfill different roles, emotional or, or psychological roles within the story. Um, Fiona is very much representative of the logical, rational approach to problem solving um rebecca is the embodiment of the emotional side you know this the side that that operates on feelings and instinct rather than um la rather than rationally logically thinking things through um sasha is sort of the uh the heart of the uh the character group she's the uh the embodiment of of faith of uh, the hope to continue moving forward um, in the face of challenges. Uh, and she's also a bit of the comic relief because she is a, uh, you know, a snarky wise-ass who is um, never afraid to uh, sort of, you know, <laughs> poke fun at people. And she does that in order to lighten the, the mood um, because she is very conscious of the emotions of the people around her. And... Uh, she doesn't like it when things get too heavy or too um, serious or too dark because it starts to weigh on her because she can feel all the emotions of all the people around her and they, they affect her very deeply. Um, Abby was put into the story. She's, she is um, early on in the story basically the MacGuffin. She is the, uh, the character who all the other um, whose who's, uh, presence sort of drives the actions of the other characters 
Um, she later gets a little more autonomy in the, the latter stages of the story, but uh, for the most part, she is, uh, you know, just there as the uh, the pawn that uh, you know that sets things into motion. Um, I could go on and on about my characters, but uh, yeah, in the case of a story as complex as making the cut the the general take-home message is I I figure out what um, roles I need fulfilled and then I sort of audition characters uh, based on those needs of the story when I'm doing a shorter story like the muse I tend to get the character first and they sort of show up and start talking to me and uh, I figure out what I'm going to do with them based upon their personality and the things that they want um, you know, Callie showed up in my head and was a very uh, strongly defined character who I didn't have a plot for until um, the I, I also got the idea for Will. Um, you know, in, his his concept was much sim- simpler. I just had the idea of you know the everyman um, who is also a writer who looks at everything from the very peculiar uh, viewpoint that a writer looks at things and. Uh, I knew I wanted to get him into trouble, um, have him run into all sorts of unfortunate chaos, a la Arthur Dent in the uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide. And uh, when you're looking for chaos, Callie is the obvious choice. So those are those are the two ways that I tell stories: um, either driven by the character, or uh, driven by the need of the plot. And then I sort of audition characters based on what I need. Also, a couple things I've always wondered is. Uh... One, where did you get the um, idea for the curses? And if possible, could you explain them a little bit more, especially the uh, 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 curse about the androgynes? And uh, in your mind, how do you think Will's uh, brush with the androgyne spell is going to work? The Curse of Metamore was actually something that was part of the original uh, Metamore Keep uh, world setting. At that time, it was uh, basically the the concept behind it is that this uh, dark wizard was trying to conquer Metamore Keep and uh, was unable to break through their um, protective wards that shielded them from destructive magic. And so rather than try to use destructive magic, he got clever and went to the the gods of shadow and uh, worked with them to develop three... Uh, transformation spells to uh, that he hoped would incapacitate the uh, the people of Metamore. Uh, the first of those, when it would strike people, it would turn them into mindless animals. Um, the second variant would, or the back up and get to the second one in a third in a moment. The the, the third variant uh, would turn people into infants. Um, and the second variant turned people into <clears throat> mindless pleasure slaves. Uh, so he used these th- um, three different spells, fired at uh, different parts of Metamore Keep simultaneously, um, to try to knock out all of the resistance uh, against his army. And uh, in the process of that uh, battle, the mages who were doing the uh, defense of the keep recognized the the spells that were headed their way as transformation magic 
uh, in just barely the nick of time, and they started weaving together a counterspell, but because they weren't prepared for it, it didn't, uh, they weren't able to counter it completely. So, um, people who are struck by the animal variant um, sort of became stuck in these anthropomorphic forms uh, that are halfway between animal and, and person. The uh, the people who were struck by the um, the infant, you know, the age regression portion of the uh, the curse, um, those people were were turned into children, um, and they can alter their ages from about uh, anything from an infant up to about uh, typically about age uh, fourteen was about what we determined the cutoff would be, um, just barely into sexual maturity and uh the people who were um able to you know who were hit with the uh the sexual uh the sex change um sex slave variant of the the spell um they were no longer controlled by the uh you know their uh libido the way that uh the wizard had originally intended uh but they you know, they couldn't change back to their original sex. They were kind of stuck. They could vary anywhere from a, a very androgynous uh, form up to a very um, sexually exaggerated form. And, uh, you know, the more uh, sexually uh, exaggerated their features were, uh, the more they would be affected mentally by the uh, the libido-enhancing aspects of the spell. Um, so the counter-curse and the three initial spells all got wrapped up together in the inherent magic of the keep itself and uh, sort of spread out over the valley to become the what we call the curse. Um, and anybody who was in Metamore Valley for too long, um, the ballpark was about six days, um, they would start to change and be randomly affected by one of those variants of the curse, and whichever one they got, they were just stuck with. Well, when the uh, the gods fell from heaven, um, when uh, they were they were pulled down and, and stuck in mortal or at least vulnerable bodies, um, their power got channeled into the keep because it was the safest place for it. Um, and when that happened, um, Kaya, who is the spirit of the keep, got access to that power and uh, was able to use it to partially uh, control the curse. So uh, after it took a, a long time for her to figure out how to do this, but eventually they, she was able to work with the, uh, the human mages to develop... Um, these uh, uh, curse suppression amulets that people could wear that would keep the curse from taking effect. And then if a person decided that they wanted the curse to take effect, then they would um, they could file the necessary paperwork and uh, Kaya would find them, um, make the necessary tweaks to the magic that was being held at bay by the amulet, and then once they removed the amulet, the variant of the curse that they wanted would take effect. Uh, she also tweaked the curse a bit to allow people to um, have more variability in their shape-shifting. Um, people were, you know, once she was done with it, 
uh, the people who the Therian morphs were able to change back to human form for short periods of time, um, but they would then have to pay it off by spending time as a full-blown animal. Um, same, similarly, the uh, the pedomorphs, the people who were affected by the age regression side, um, could become adult or become more adult, but uh, once they had accumulated that uh, shifting stress, they would then have to pay it back by um, re you know, reverting to the form of a young child. Um, the androgynes sort of have the, the most added flexibility uh, because of the tweaks that, um, that Kaya did to the curse. Um, they are able now to fully return to their original sex, um, which is something that they were not able to do at the time of Metamorph Keep. Um, but they can only spend a certain limited period of time there, and as they, the longer they spend in their, their born sex, the more uh, shifting stress they accumulate. And then when they're, um, you know, eventually they're, they're, they either have to change back of their own, of their own will, um, or they accumulate so much stress that they snap back automatically. And, uh, the downside of this is that the longer that, you know, the more shifting stress that they accumulate, the more strongly the curse affects them when they snap back. So an androgyne who tries to um, spend too much time in his, you know, if he, if he was born male and took the curse and became um, a female dominant androgyne, um, if he spends too long as a male, um, you know, in his male body, then when he snaps back to f being female, his or her libido is going to be uh, extremely enhanced, and she's going to have a really hard time behaving rationally. So the androgynes tend to get around um, the whole shifting stress problem um, by switching back and forth between their uh, male and female alter egos on a regular cycle. Um, they can spend as much time as they want in their, their dominant form, the form that they changed into. So if, you know, the, in our hypothetical situation, our, you know, our guy could spend as much time as he wanted in his female form, and uh, she would never uh, accumulate any, any stress that required her to go back to being a male. Um, but uh, many times they tend to uh, enjoy both halves of their sexuality and will switch back and forth from one side to the other, which is what we see with Evan and Ava. Um, the other thing about the curse is that if it's reinforced in subsequent generations, it affects those subsequent generations more, more intensely than it did the first generation. Um, and this has differing effects depending upon which version of the curse you're hit with. In the case of the androgynes, um, the more successive generations of people who take the androgyne curse, the more divergent their male and female um, personalities become. So they, you know, you get to the point where these people are, um, you know, their male and female halves are, are essentially two different people. Who are sharing the same memories and at the highest levels of, of separation of what I call bifurcation or splitting in two of the personality at the highest levels they they aren't even 
um, sharing memories. They ha if they want to speak to each other, they have to you know pass notes back and forth or record messages for each other, um, which can get kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, most most people who uh, have the androgyne curse, um, they do tend to. Um, you know, th there are relatively few people who are that t completely bifurcated. Um, they tend to see themselves as alter egos of the same person, um, and they they may have different needs or interests, um, different personalities to some extent or another, depending upon how many generations it's been since the first uh, generation of the um, their ancestors took the androgyne curse. So that's the that's the situation with them. In some of your other stories, and sometimes in making the cut, you mention uh, that there are some landmarks and also uh, some people that have survived, uh, uh, are still around and alive from the days of Metamore Keep. Um, could you explain that a little? Are there immortals in Metamore City, or oh, aside from the vampires, are there immortals in Metamore City? Most of the people in. Uh, Metamore City, who were around at the time of Metamore Keep, um, the so-called Immortals. These are uh, the members of the Fallen Pantheon or their heirs. Um, the uh, you know a good example is, uh, for example, uh, Lord Richter, who is the God of War. Um, he inherited that job from the original God of War, who. Uh, you know, after they f they fell to Earth, there were some circumstances where he was going to be killed by um, one of their enemies, and uh, he didn't want the uh, his power to pass to someone that he felt was dishonorable. So he asked uh, Richter to uh, to you know execute him and thus uh, take the burden of the job for himself. Um, Richter was a mortal at the time of he was a mortal. Um, at the time of Metamore Keep, and uh, after he took on the mantle of the God of War, he, uh, you know, the, he stopped aging. And uh, at the time of Metamore City, he is now the uh, the Minister of Defense for the Metamore Empire. Um, there are a couple of other people who have uh, similarly inherited positions in the Pantheon. Um, and there are a number of people who are, you know, they were, you know, fallen members of the Pantheon who are still around and uh, walking around and uh, continuing to have their influence on the world. The other uh, two people who are still around from that time period are, uh, well, the, the other two who you're going to know about for right now are... Uh, the Majestrix Kaya, who is the spirit of the keep. She is not immortal. She never has been mortal. She is um, the spirit of Metamore. And uh, her job given to her, as she claims by the creator itself, uh, is to watch out for humanity, to be the caretaker of this place um, that was supposed to, is supposed to be the refuge for humanity in the world. Um, so that if anyone is ever in need or in danger or in need of, of protection, uh, they can come to Metamore and uh, be safe there. That is the uh, that is her her purpose and calling. Um, and uh, 
now part of how she executes that job is by serving as the the chief executive of the the empire of metamore um, the other person who uh, you will see eventually is uh, saint marai marai hindana the star child the uh, girl who i was telling you about previously who was the secret weapon of the gods who turned on them and uh, then you know essentially caused the downfall of the pantheon and uh, she was later um, named as the uh, the founder of this uh, sort of hybrid religion the church of saint marai and uh, she keeps a, an eye on them and sort of acts in a, a manner comparable to what the pope does for uh, the catholic church sort of uh, serving as a, a guardian of doctrine and uh, occasionally um, issuing statements about this that or the other but for the most part she's she's more hands-off than the pontiff is and uh, you know she she knows that she's being kept around for a purpose uh, she has enough connection to Eli to uh, to know that there is a reason why he wants her here. Um, she doesn't know why. Uh, she could at any time give up the the supernatural power that sustains her and uh, age and die like a like a normal woman. But she knows that she's not supposed to do that. She just hasn't been told why yet. She's sort of being kept around and. You know, has received a prophetic message that said, you know, stay here and wait for further orders. Um, and uh, that's pretty much where she's been. She's been in a holding pattern for about the last thousand years and uh, has been doing what she can to watch over the Church of, of uh, St. Marai, but uh, is kind of wondering what her ultimate purpose is. Um, and that will be something that will be. Uh, revealed over the course of the uh, the ongoing story arc. A few other people are um, still around from the uh, the early days of of Metamore Keep. Um, most of these people are uh, individuals who were um, not quite apothesized. They but uh, one of the members of the um, the pantheon took enough of an interest in them to give them a portion of their power to keep them from aging. They don't have any other um, superpowers as a result of being um, these, you know, consorts, in essence, to the, the, to the gods. But uh, they are still around, and uh, they carry their experience with them, if nothing else. And, and uh, for that reason, they are valued within the, uh, the power structure of the Metamore Empire. Um, but yeah, for the most part, most of the people from the the old days of Metamore Keep are not around anymore. Uh, there's maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of two dozen uh, individuals who uh, will be making, you know, who are who are still in existence and operational and still involved in the affairs of the world from that time. And uh, for the most part, we've barely seen any of those people yet. And uh, the Immortals are not really the central focus of the story. Uh, we will be touching on them because any creature as powerful as them can't be ignored. But uh, I, you know, the the primary stories that I want to tell in Metamore City are about the uh, 
the more ordinary people, the people who have to worry about pesky things like death and, uh, you know, <laughs> other such inconveniences of being alive. As far as uh, structures are concerned, um, there really isn't anything from the original world of Metamore Keep that is still um, standing. There are communities that are still around. Glen Avery is a, uh, an example of a, a little um, forest-centric uh, community that was uh, in existence at the time of Metamore Keep, and that community is still around at the time of Metamore City. Um, but obviously it's, it's uh, you know, changed a lot since then, and you know, none of the original structures are still standing. Um, the exception is the Citadel, which is the, uh, the, the physical body of Kaya. And uh, that is the same structure as Metamore Keep from the original uh, Metamore Keep setting. Um, the difference is that, that Kaya has caused it to grow and change and uh, reshape itself over the centuries to fill the needs of the inhabitants. And uh, so there is some continuity of existence there. But if a, uh, an inhabitant of the original Metamorph Keep were to come and see this mile-high uh, citadel in the spot where the keep was, there would be nothing there for them to recognize that it was the same structure that they had lived in until they went inside and actually saw that Kaya was still there. Okay, and one more quick one, and this is the real last question that I have, but um, and some of the first stories, you talked about how there was the uh, vampires that ran organized crime in Metamore City. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that, and uh, when you plan on getting a little bit more in-depth as towards the vampire mafia, as it were? You will definitely hear more about the vampires in Making the Cut. Uh, they play a very big role in the story. Um, you know, they, in the early, these early chapters, their, their presence is sort of felt but not actually seen. That will change. Um, towards, the begin, towards the middle of the book, you start to see more of the vampires actually being involved in the storyline. And in the last third of the book... Um, Malcolm Ardvalos, the uh, the the prince, the the you know the kingpin who's in charge of the uh, the vampire mafia within Metamore City, um, he will make his first appearance, and he and his minions have a very direct and dramatic effect on the plot uh, as the rest of the story progresses. Um, and in future stories that uh, take place in Metamorph City, um, future novels, you will see a lot more of the vampires. They definitely have a very big role to play. And uh, the ongoing struggle between them and the various other factions within Metamorph, you know, both the, uh, the police who are trying to maintain law and order and the, uh, the telepaths who are opposed to the vamps because, uh, you know, they, they're basically they see them as psychic parasites um you know those interactions between those factions will continue to have a major major uh influence on where the story goes in the future 
Well, I'd have to say that this has been a pretty fun interview, seeing as the last uh, stretch of the interview was pretty much a blind interview on both of our parts. We were basically <laughs> we were basically typing the questions back and forth on Skype while uh, uh, Chris recorded them on his own, and then I would record my own questions. So it was a blind interview, and I'm going to have to paste this all together uh, in the final editing, and it's going to be quite a surprise for me, too, because I don't <laughs> know most of his answers. <laughs> It'll be interesting yeah. to hear the final product, that's for sure. Yeah, like I said, it'll be a bonus <laughs> podcast for me because I still don't know what you're going to say. <laughs> okay, well, it was great having you on my blogcast today, Chris. Well, thank you very much, John. It was really awesome, so thanks for thanks for coming on to it. And yeah. hopefully one day when I don't sleep all day and we don't have problems with Skype and you're not busy, we could maybe do a more in-depth interview as far as making the cut is concerned. Oh, sure. And, yeah, and who knows, maybe if you're not busy one of these days, then I can probably have you as a guest host on the blogcast itself, seeing as I always discuss pretty interesting topics when I'm not plugging podcasts. Yeah, yeah, have me as a okay. guest host, eh? Yeah. Um, so would you like to take this time to say anything in general or about your podcast or anything? Uh, you can find it at www.metamorecity.com. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R-city.com. I am also on uh, Skype as C.W. Lester. I am on uh, Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. And uh, that's pretty much my coverage. I have a MySpace page, but I don't use it that much. Who does anymore? And, uh, yeah, really. <laughs> so if you wanna, if you wanna um, take part in the conversation and uh, see what I'm up to, you know, come join me on Twitter and take part in the rolling conversation there. <laughs> and uh, you know, we also have forums for Metamore City Podcast, yeah. which are at thecursed.org. And uh, come and join the uh, the conversation. Yeah, and um, I guess that's it for this blogcast. So this is. You have been listening to Banter Over a Cigarette with your host John Hollywood. For more information and additional blogcasts, please go to www.zanga.com. Slash Briars X N X My X Soul. The song in this broadcast was Bleeding Wool, provided with permission from Jay Wheeler. For more of his music, please go to myspace.com slash the letter J Wheeler Metal with two T's. This broadcast was made in the year 2008, courtesy of John Hollywood Productions. If you enjoy listening to my broadcast, please tell your friends. And if you like, leave comments on my blog telling me what you think. Thank you for listening. Hollywood signing off uh, with Chris Lester and I'm tired and so I really can't think of any sign off tag for tonight so you got one Chris keep it on the bright side keep it on the bright side all right well that's it
Good night, everybody.